Chapter 2, verses 3 through 11 of the Great Commentary of Cornelius Elipedi, St. Matthew's Gospel, by Cornelius Elipedi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. We have seen his star in the east. Some writers refer the words in the east to we have seen. That is, we being in the east saw the star in the west, shining over Judea, so that the Magi knew whither to wend their way. Similarly, the pole star shows the way to sailors. Others, with more probability, refer in the east to the word star, i.e., we in the east saw the star there with us in the east. But both opinions are tenable. For first, this star seems to have appeared over Judea to signify that the king of the Jews was born there, and must there be sought. Hence, in Numbers 24:17, four shall rise. The Hebrew has darach, i.e., hath proceeded. A star proceedeth out of Jacob. You will ask, did the star remain stationary in the east, or was it a constant attendant upon the Magi in their journey to Judea? Jansen, Kajetan, and others think that it remains stationary, they attempt to prove this, one, because the Magi say, we have seen his star in the east. And when they departed from Jerusalem, St. Matthew says, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east. Two, because Herod and the Jews and the rest did not, as it would seem, behold the star. For had they done so, some surely would have followed it and come with the Magi to Christ. Three, because the Magi knew from Balaam's prophecy that the star portended that the king of the Jews was now born. And as they knew the way to Judea, they did not require the star to guide them. On the other hand, Saints Chrysostom and Leo, Theophylact, St. Thomas, Lyra, Suarez, Maldonatus, and Christologos are of the opinion that the star did accompany the Magi as far as Judea. As Christologos says, when they walked, the star went on. When they sat down, it stayed. When they slept, it kept vigil over them. This is the common opinion of believers. Whence the church sings in her hymn, the Magi went on following the star, which they had seen, which went before them. So therefore, when the Magi say, we have seen his star in the east, they are speaking only of their beginning to see the star. We have seen, meaning, we first saw his star when we were come in the east, and being called by the sight of it, we are come, with that star for our guide, having followed it as it went before us until we came to Jerusalem. And because the star disappeared at Jerusalem, they then went to Herod and the scribes, and asked them where Christ was born. Both opinions are probable and worthy of examination, and may perhaps be reconciled one with the other, by supposing that the star which shone in the east was of exceeding brightness, as St. Ignatius testifies, at its first appearance, when it attracted the eyes of the Magi, to which they referred when they said, We have seen his star in the east. But that afterwards, when it went with them in their journey, it was covered with the cloud, and shone less brightly, so that it was visible to scarcely any save the Magi. Lest if other men had seen it, in its utmost brilliancy, and had accompanied them in a great band to Jerusalem, they might have stirred up Herod and the Jews against Christ to destroy him. For it was plainly fitting 
that the star which called forth the Magi should show them the way to Christ, who was afar off and hidden. In like manner, the pillar of fire and cloud, which was the leader of the camp of the Hebrews, shone before them like fire by night, but by day was covered with a cloud, as I have shown in my commentary on Exodus 13 and Numbers 9. But that some others besides the Magi saw the star is probable, for since the star was a large one, bright and visible to them, why not to others? For God willed Christ to be made known to all the world. Still, few or none followed the star with the Magi, both because they understood not the mystery and because they were hindered by worldly cares. Hence we learn how necessary is powerful and effectious grace for seeking Christ. Of this he speaks, No man can come unto me except my Father draw him. Thus in the Passion of Christ, the eclipse of the sun was seen at Athens by St. Dionysius the Areopagite, and this was why he was converted by St. Paul when he learnt from him the cause of the eclipse because namely it was at that very day and hour that Christ was crucified. Suarez adds that the star only shone by day in places near the Magi, but was at a loftier elevation by night, and was then less conspicuous. So says Nicephorus. Lastly, the Magi were appropriately called by the star, because they were astronomers. Hence they knew that this star was not a common one, but a prodigy, and portended some divine event. Thus they understood that the Maker and Lord of the stars, to whom all the stars are obedient, was born. Hence the Church celebrates with so great solemnity the Feast of the Epiphany, in which the Magi are called to adore Christ, because in them and by them was begun the calling and salvation of the Gentiles. Wherefore St. Leo says, Let us, brethren beloved, recognize in the Magi who worshipped Christ, the first fruits of our vocation and faith. And with exulting minds, let us celebrate the beginnings of blessed hope. From this time forth, we began to enter into our eternal inheritance. And St. Augustine says, This day on which we keep the anniversary of our festival first shone upon the Magi. They were the first fruits of the Gentiles, and we are the people of the Gentiles. To us hath the tongue of the apostles announced it, but to them the star as though the tongue of heaven, and the same apostles, as though they were other heavens, have declared unto us the glory of God. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Herod was troubled because he feared that he would lose the kingdom of the Jews. Now that Messiah, their true and legitimate prince, was born. What wonder, says St. Augustine, that impiety should be troubled at the birth of piety. Jerusalem was troubled, as well because there were many in it who favored Herod, as because the scribes and chief priests, having leisure only for their own advantage, and being thus in a state of spiritual slumber, had no thought about the coming of Messiah. That now the scepter was departed from Judah, as Jacob had foretold, Messiah should be born. Wisely does St. Gregory say, when the king of heaven was born, the earthly king was troubled, because indeed terrestrial exaltation is confounded when celestial greatness is disclosed. For as St. Fugentius says, this king came not to fight against and conquer earthly kings, 
but by dying marvelously to subdue them. Not therefore was he born to be thy successor, O Herod, but that the world might faithfully believe in him. Christ seizes not thy royalty, says St. Leo, nor would the Lord of the universe be contended with thy petty scepter. He whom thou wishest not to be king in Judea reigns everywhere, and thyself wouldest reign more prosperously if thou wouldest be subject to his sway. And Herod, as we may see in Josephus, cut off all the members of the royal house of Judah, lest there should be any rival to his sovereignty. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. He calls the learned doctors of the law, the scribes, who occupied themselves in transcribing, reading, and expounding the sacred scriptures. They are sometimes called lawyers. Such a one was Ezra. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. I have explained this prophecy in my commentary upon Micah 5, so that I shall not repeat it here. Only let us observe three discrepancies between St. Matthew and Micah. The first is that St. Matthew, in speaking of Bethlehem, omits the name of Ephrathah. The explanation is that Bethlehem had two names, and it was called by its founders Bethlehem and Ephrathah, because Ephrathah was the father of Bethlehem. And Ephrathah in Hebrew signifies fruitful or fruit-bearing. Bethlehem has a similar meaning, being house of bread. The little reason why Christ would be born at Bethlehem was that he might be accounted David's son, who was promised to him, who was himself born in Bethlehem. The moral reason was to teach us humility, to be content with a lowly parentage, a lowly country, a humble cottage. Whence St. Leo says, He who took the form of a servant chose Bethlehem for his birthplace, and that in that obscure place he might hide his glory, but Jerusalem for his passion, that he might the more make known abroad the shame of the cross. He taught us therefore to cover our glory, to uncover our shame. He here taught us that heavenly glory, which is a paradox to the world, is that the way to glory is flight from glory. Christ who is a star, i.e., a light and guide to glory and blessedness, hid himself in his Godhead and his dignity of Messiah by abiding in the manger of Bethlehem, and therefore God the Father displays him to the whole world and glorifies him by means of a star shining out of heaven. If therefore thou seekest true glory, shun fame, court, ignominy, and if thou desirest glory, thou shalt lose it. But if thou despisest it, then even against thy will thou shalt be had in honor. For this paradox is most true. Glory follows him that shuns it, flees from him that pursues it, as a shadow the body. Humility goeth before honor. Proverbs 15.33 God exalteth the lowly and humbleth the proud. Whence Christ emptied himself and made himself of no reputation, and became obedient unto death, even death of the cross. Wherefore also God hath exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. Philippians 2. 2. The second discrepancy is that, for thou art not the least, as St. Matthew has it, Micah has, thou art a little one, 
i.e. art the least or very little. The explanation is that in mica, an adversative particle is implied from the context. As in Psalm 119, meaning very little art thou, O Bethlehem, if I look at thy walls, thy citizens, thy buildings, thy frame, but yet very far art thou from being little, if I consider the princes that have come from thee, and that have been and shall be born in thee. For in thee was born King David, and of thee shall be born Christ, David's antitype. Some read the words in Micah interrogatively, Art thou very small? That is, thou art by no means the least. But by reason of Christ, thou shalt become very great and famous. 3. Instead of among the princes, Micah has among the thousands. The explanation is that the Hebrew alf denotes both a thousand and a prince, but either translation in this place comes to the same thing, for in the princes means among the princes, i.e. the cities or even the inhabitants of Judah. This is from the great number of princely men who have or shall come forth from thee. In the thousands, this is the same as among the cities, which contain many thousands of people, and therefore they are princes, and have their own chiefs or princes. For the people of Israel was divided by Moses into Chileads, or so many thousands of families, such of which had their own dukes and princes. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. This he did secretly, in order to avoid popular rumors, murmurs, and tumults, for the people were expecting their Messiah, and it was also that he might more thoroughly and reliably find out all the particulars concerning the star. He learned from them when the star appeared, that thus he might know when Christ was born, and so by killing all the infants who were born about that date, might slay Christ among them. For even already he had determined on the slaughter of the infants in his own mind. Whence the Arabic version hath it, he was informed by them concerning the time in which the star appeared to them. And he sent it to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. This was the fox-like cunning of a fox. He would make the Magi obedient and faithful to him, by pretending that he wished to worship Christ, when he was taking thought how to kill him. So Caracalla, in order to reign alone, slew his brother Geta in his mother's arms, because he was associated with him in the empire. And to extenuate his crime by piety, he placed his brother among the gods, saying, Let him be a god, so long as he is not alive. In like manner, Herod saith to the Magi that he would worship Christ as God, while he purposed in his mind to kill him as a man and a king. And when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. From hence it would appear that the star which shone in the east, with great effulgence, afterwards, when it accompanied the Magi, appeared less brilliant, and at Jerusalem was hidden altogether, so as to force the Magi to inquire of the scribes where Christ should be born, that by this means it might be made known even to them that he was born, for Herod and his minions were unworthy of beholding his celestial star, 
for if they had, they would have used their knowledge to seek out and destroy Christ. But when the Magi departed from Jerusalem, the star again appeared, and shone with its former luster, to indicate Christ, who is the light, yea, the Son of this world, and by its radiance to point out the very spot, that is to say, the stable in which he abode after his birth, so that they might not have to wander in vain, searching for him from house to house. When they saw the star, i.e., as brilliant as at first, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Exceeding great. This is the force of the Hebrew, Gedola Miod. And they rejoiced so greatly, because the star being thus illustrious, they knew that they were come nigh to the Messiah, and were going to him by a direct course. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother. From this passage, some are of the opinion that after their enrollment, the wealthier people who had come to Bethlehem for the purpose were departed, and so that there were now many houses in Bethlehem at liberty for the purpose of hospitality, and that Christ had been removed from the stable in which he was born to some worthier abode of one of the citizens, and was there worshipped by the Magi, for it is said they entered into the house. So St. Epiphanius, Maldonatas, and others but the more common opinion is that the stable in which Christ was born is called the house, for the Hebrews call any place in which people live a house. As in Psalm 106, the house, i.e., the nest of the coot, is their leader, namely of birds and flying creatures. For since the census of the whole people proclaimed by Augustus was being taken during some weeks and months, and since during that period a succession of wealthy people kept arriving for enrollment, and afterwards departing, there was no room for Mary and Joseph, who were poor people, in the hostelry, until the thirteenth day after Christ's birth. And God ordered this both to try the constancy of the Magi, and to teach them and others that Christ's kingdom consists in poverty, humility, and contempt of the world, not in earthly wealth and pride, and pomps and palaces, so St. Augustine, Justin, Chrysostom, and Suarez, which later adds, It is plain that Christ and the Blessed Virgin, as a woman who had lately given birth to a child, remained in the stable until her purification. Whence St. Jerome says, Behold, in this little hole of the earth the Maker of the heavens is born. Here he was wrapped in swaddlings, here adored by the Magi. And Augustine says, He was lying in a manger, Yet he led the Magi from the east. He was hidden in a stable and was acknowledged in heaven, that being recognized in heaven, he might be manifested in a stable. You may reconcile these two opinions with each other, if you suppose that in Bethlehem, being a small city, there was only one public hospice for strangers, to which was attached a stable for their horses and other beasts of burden. And so it is said that the Magi entered into the house or inn, because they went into the stable of the inn. St. Luke's words are in favor of this, when he says, There was no room for them in the inn. This means the common hospice of the place, and they found the babe lying in the manger, plainly the only manger belonging to the stable of this hospice. No mention is made of Joseph on this occasion, either because he had gone away into the city or the country, to procure food and other necessities for the Blessed Virgin in Christ, 
and this was in accordance with the divine purpose, that the Magi might not suppose him to be the father of Christ, and Christ to be born as other children are. Or if he were present, he was supposed, under the name of Mary's husband, to be the guardian of Christ and the keeper of the stable. And St. Matthew signifies, by his narrative, that the Blessed Virgin and Joseph so conducted themselves in the presence of the Magi that they understood by God's inspiration that Christ was born of the Virgin alone by the power of the Holy Ghost, and that Joseph only took care of them. Wherefore it is not doubtful that the Magi conversed with Mary, either in Arabic, for she had the gift of tongues, or else in Hebrew, through an interpreter, and learnt from her the manner of the conception and birth of Christ. And therefore they adored him as God and the Son of God, and offered unto him their threefold gifts, but received from him far greater spiritual gifts for their souls, even illumination, consolation, and heavenly warmth. In return for their gold, they received the increase of wisdom and burning love, instead of their frankincense, the gift of prayer and devotion, and in exchange for myrrh, zeal for a purpose and uncorrupt life. They fell down and worshipped him. The Arabic has, they fell down in adoration of him. Erasmus thinks that the Magi did not know Christ was God, and therefore did not worship him with Latria, but with civil respect, as the kings of the Jews. But the fathers and interpreters teach the contrary, that the Magi, by divine inspiration, were aware of Christ's divinity, and worshipped it with Latria, and that for this reason they offered him frankincense, which is due to God alone. So Irenaeus, St. Leo, and others. Whence St. Fulgentius says, wisely in his sermon on the Epiphany, consider what they offered, and you will know what they believed. Hence this day is called by the Greeks Epiphany and Theophany, i.e. the appearing of God, because on that day Christ was declared to the Magi to be God, and was worshipped by them as God. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, frankincense and gold and myrrh. In these things Arabia abounds. It was the ancient custom of the Arabians and other Orientals not to approach their kings and rulers, except with a gift, as it were a tribute due to them. Whence Seneca says, No one may salute the monarchs of Parthia without a present. Moreover, it was God's law, Exodus 23, Thou shalt not appear before me empty. Lastly, the queen of Sheba gave precious gifts to Solomon and received greater from him. Thus it was with the Magi in Christ, who is the true Solomon. St. Bernard thinks that the Magi offered gold to the Blessed Virgin and Christ to succor their poverty, myrrh to strengthen Christ's infant limbs, frankincense to prevent the unpleasant odors of the stable. This is a very literal and undignified sense, for the fathers teach Passum in a far higher way that, illuminated by the Holy Ghost, they offered gold to Christ as the most wise king, for wisdom is compared to gold. Proverbs 8. Frankincense to God, and according to his humanity, as the high priest and pontiff. Myrrh to Christ as man, about to die and be buried for the redemption of the human race and the third day to rise again to immortality and eternal glory. For the bodies of the dead are buried with myrrh, that they may remain incorrupt. Myrrh has the property of drying up moisture and preventing the generation of worms. So St. Leo says, Frankincense they offer to God, myrrh to man, gold to the king, 
wisely venerating the divine and human nature joined in one, what they believe in their hearts they show forth by their gifts. As St. Ambrose says, gold for a king, frankincense for God, myrrh for the dead. And St. Gregory, by gold they proclaim a king, by frankincense God, by myrrh a mortal man. Very beautifully, says St. Jerome, does the presbyter Juvenicus in one sentence comprehend the mysteries of the gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, for a king, man, and God. Grammarians derive thus, frankincense from the Greek theo, I make an odor, or better from theo, I sacrifice, because the first sacrifices of primitive men were fumigations of incense, hence honors of frankincense meant divine honors. Bede, whose words I have already quoted, asserts that the first of the Magi, whose name was Melchior, gave gold, Caspar II, frankincense, Belshazzar III, myrrh. But others, with more probability, think that each of them offered all these their gifts to Christ, and that each, by these their gifts, attested their own faith in Christ as being a king and God and about to suffer for man. Hence the gloss says, all this was done by divine inspiration to signify the regal power in Christ by gold, the divine majesty by frankincense, the human mortality by myrrh. Allegorically, these three gifts signify Christ, who offered himself to God the Father upon the cross, as it were with gold, since out of golden love, even love to man, he immolated himself as the myrrh of this very bitter passion of his griefs and torments, and as the frankincense of the highest devotion, submission, veneration, and worship. Whence also on the same day of the week, on which Christ offered himself upon the cross, the Magi offered their three gifts to Christ. For the tradition is that Christ was born on the Lord's day. And if from thence you reckon thirteen days, you will come to the Friday of the following week. For the Magi worshipped him on the thirteenth day after his birth. Again, Christ offered three gifts to the Holy Trinity, namely his flesh, soul, and divinity. Just as Christians offer to the same triune God acts of faith, hope, and charity. Tropologically, in the first place, gold is charity or love and wisdom. Frankincense is prayer and devotion. Myrrh is mortification. Whence St. Gregory says, We offer gold if we shine by the light of wisdom. Frankincense if we are redolent with fervent prayer. Myrrh if we mortify the vices of the flesh. Hence in Canticles 5.14, the bride says of Christ, the bridegroom, his hands are as gold rings, full of hyacinths, his hands, that is, the works of Christ, and therefore perfect. They are as rings, they may be turned and adopted to everything good. They are golden, because adorned with charity, full of hyacinths, because they breathe the love of heavenly things. Thus the gold works of charity make golden hands. As many works of charity as thou doest, so many golden rings dost thou put upon thy fingers, yea, verily upon the fingers of Christ. Good works, says St. Bernard, are the seed of eternity and of eternal glory. The very celebrated painter, Zuxis, used to paint very slowly. Being asked the reason, he replied, I paint for eternity. Thus also do thou, O believer, work, live, paint for eternity, that thy works may, through all eternity, shine in heaven before God, the angels and the blessed. 
that frankincense denotes prayer and myrrh mortification is plain from Canticles 4.7. I will go to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. In 1.13, my beloved is a bundle of myrrh unto me. And 4.14, the smell of thy garments is as the odor of frankincense, i.e. lifting up prayers and sighs to God. For, says St. Gregory, in all his works he prays, whilst he performs all good works he is able to do, with the intention of arriving at heavenly things. The same says on Canticle chapter 3, the holy soul makes its heart, as it were, a thurible to its God. Mark the saying of St. Gregory Nizan, the cause of sin is not to implore the help of God by prayer. Again, gold is voluntary poverty, for this poverty is most rich and far more pleasing to God than all the gold of this world. Whence the apostle, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Frankincense is obedience, whereby a man offers his own will and intellect, yea, his entire self, to God as a holocaust of frankincense. Myrrh is fasting, mortification of the flesh, and what springs from mortification, chastity. Wherefore, many think that the three vows of religion are here mystically signified, namely, by frankincense, the vow of obedience, by myrrh, the vow of chastity, by gold, the vow of poverty. Moreover, by these three gifts, three kinds of good works are denoted, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, to which all species of virtues may be referred. For almsgiving helps our neighbor, prayer worships and calls upon God, fasting steadies a man within himself. So then, by means of these three, we offer to God whatever good things we have, namely by almsgiving our works, by prayer our souls, by fasting our bodies. Anagogically, St. Maximus thinks that by gold is signified man's redemption, by frankincense the Christian religion, by myrrh the resurrection. End of chapter 2, verses 3 through 11.